Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, this is Paul Axton, and today I'm here with uh, Jason Rodenbeck. Today we are discussing a little bit uh, more about post-liberalism. Jason had uh, listened to some of what Peyton and I had been talking about. I've gotten a lot of reaction from that particular set of podcasts. And Jason came back with a, a very interesting perspective, not a contrary, but just to pitch in a different perspective on, on the discussion. And I wanted to bring that in because I think that his experience then is very different. And so, Jason, tell us uh, in general uh, what you were reacting to there. Well, one of the things that I appreciated about the conversation with Hayden is how Hayden mentioned the inability uh, when people are trapped in this conservative and versus liberal thinking, you know, being on one side or the other of that conversation. There's a tendency to think of that conversation as only having those two positions. I think he was the one that mentioned that when the fundamentalist hears something that's post-liberal, they're not really able to differentiate that from liberalism. So they have a tendency just to say, well, that's just liberal. And that's a way to dismiss a lot of things that you don't understand for a fundamentalist is just to say, well, it's just liberal and therefore it's, uh, I have to shun that. But for me, I grew up in fundamentalist churches and lived that and went to a fundamentalist college, a little bit more open-minded seminary. In the last few years, my wife and I got involved in a, the Mennonite churches, which here in Atlanta have sort of been taken over, I guess, co-opted by folks coming out of Emory. And Emory is a very classically liberal seminary, just straight deconstructionism and what have you. We ended up wrestling with the other side of that. They weren't any more happy with nonviolent atonement than the fundamentalist was. In fact, I had preached a sermon one day at the church where I was making an argument for nonviolent atonement and had the experience of, I was even trying to argue for uh, uh, a re-understanding of Old Testament sacrifice based on Hebrews saying God did not need these sacrifices and a history of the minor prophets saying God doesn't need these sacrifices. But then the book of Hebrews tells us, that those sacrifices were a yearly reminder of sin, that they were for our benefit, not God's benefit. And so therefore, it wasn't to satisfy God's bloodthirst so he could forgive us. It was something else. And one of the seminary students got up and uh, very, very distraught after I had preached and said, that's dangerous. I was hurt by it. It was a very um, tense time anyway for us. But after I got past that, I started to I started to think why would that bother him? Well, they've been raised on this this approach to the scripture where we look at the Old Testament as being written by a bunch of pre-modern naive, I don't know, pagan misogynist. I'm trying to throw all the terms in there that we're supposed to be deconstructing that, not looking at it and saying is there a real meaning or good good theology there to be had. Hmm. It's really dangerous not to dismiss that stuff. Same thing with um, my, my wife and I had been asked to do some teaching and they had a, for the Sunday school, had a very 
specific way of doing Sunday school. You basically came in, read a scripture, and then you asked it four questions. What does it say about God? What does it say about us? I can't remember the other two. There wasn't any point, though, where we tried to dig in and say, what should we be understanding this story or this idea? What's the author trying to get across? Authorial intent is not an option. First of all, we can't get at it. And I think this is right out of Derrida. Um, We really can't get at that anyway. That's not the goal. We don't want to do that. We want to, basing our understanding on what's true, on what we've discovered through our our enlightenment, and so now we go back and deconstruct these stories. And so just get rid of it. Vanjie and I did a, a two Sunday series on the book of Ruth for Sunday school. And we were concentrating on the bits of Hebrew law that were there in Ruth to sort of undo the misogynistic patriarchal culture, things like the kinsman redeemer law that were designed to provide for the widow. And then also we were talking about the rules that were built into culture to take care of the poor by leaving food on the ground that had, you know, as you're harvesting, there were people that came behind and that was, that food belonged to God. So we were trying to focus on these real social justice issues that we saw written into the story. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, uh, one of the folks said, well, you didn't really get to the point. Ruth was a sex slave. I, I wasn't prepared for that. Ruth was a sex slave that Naomi used to get her own child. Because at the end of the story, she say, says, Naomi was full of joy. Don't call me Mara anymore. Call me Naomi. Because, and now they also, now Naomi has a son again. So they took that as being, that part was the part, you know, that was so offensive when it's actually Ruth's child that she had through her sex slave. And I, and I said, but Ruth volunteered to come with Naomi. It wasn't a slave. Naomi said, so I was so blown away by it that it was two weeks later when I finally went, wait a minute, why didn't I just ask, do you really think that's the point of the story? Is that what we're supposed to get from the story? But you don't read what you're supposed to get from the story. You you have to judge the story from an enlightened, our enlightened context. And we're so enlightened, we've got Donald Trump as president now. So, you know, that, that's how enlightened we are. What I'm thinking of as you're describing this is Nazi Germany and the liberals' uh, reaction in Nazi Germany. And of course, even before Nazi Germany, the rise, the, the reaction of Germany and the liberal the- theologians that Karl Barth you know, had been trained in classical liberal theology and he saw his professors all lining up to support German chancellor. It's at that point that he recognizes this liberal theology in its imagining that religion and its culture despisers is the picture that Schleiermacher gives us, is that in some way what you get is that culture then implicitly is the authority and what you're not getting, and this is what you know, Bart saw so clearly and what came true in Nazi Germany, is that people imagined that in their enlightened Mm self-awareness and their capacities to pass judgment on right and wrong, that they simply absorbed notions of what what is right and wrong or what is uh, cultured or what is enlightened as has been handed to them by that cultural moment. 
Yeah, it's, it is just a, a kind of, what are we're talking about a liberalism now that's more than the, a century old, that, that this stuff is just hung around. It is empty. I mean, it is a, a thing that just gives you culture. And that's what you're what you seem to be describing in the end that it really doesn't matter that in a, a, a truly accepting liberal community of people the focus is no longer upon what you may believe or not believe let's let's get beyond mere belief but the emphasis then is upon some sort of inward dependence or acknowledgement of a higher being. There's a, a bazillion ways to unpack it. When we left this church, one of the reasons we left is a new minister had basically stood up and preached a sermon in which he was reading the, the Mennonite statements of faith. Just based on their published statement of faith, I, I thought I could be this, you know, uh, this understanding of the, the call of the gospel to be peacemakers, the call of the gospel to, to lay down our lives, the call the, to, to live simply, to live justly, those kinds of things. The one point where he stopped, he said, now, the statement of faith says that we also believe in the authority of scripture. And he said, that's where I can't, I can't go that far. And I, I just remember thinking, well, that's, that's why I do peace is because of what I believe that God has always written into the Hebrew culture, what God was always trying to work into the Hebrew culture, and then what we see worked out in Jesus' life, the peacemaking that we see made at, worked out in Jesus' life, I get that because of the Bible, not in spite of the Bible. And he really sees it in spite of the Bible. He said this out loud in using words. We have to start with what we know is true and then judge the Bible by that. And when we find something we know that goes against what we know to be true and right. And you know, I didn't say anything to him. I, I didn't respect it enough to, and I didn't figure it was going to be a, like a, a fruitful conversation. But he emailed me the next day, and I didn't even know he had my email address, and said, I noticed you making a facial expression, which I try real hard not to show my facial expressions when I'm hearing something like that, but apparently it just happens. I, I wrote back and said, well, I really do, do have a problem with that, namely that the fundamentalists do the same thing, where they start with what they believe and then disregard the parts that they don't immediately understand. I said, you know, what if you're wrong? And what if you don't have it right? Basically, it, it boils down to either the scripture has authority or I have authority over it. He claimed, well, what about, I, say, I think the Holy Spirit leads. I'm a mystic, and so I believe in the Holy Spirit, at which point you, the conversation's over. God's telling me you're full of it, so I don't know what else to tell you. you know? I'm noticing a lot of friends who are reacting to the contemporary fundamentalist dogmatism and hypocrisy and saying, well, I'm going to swing over here because I perceive this liberalism to be on the other side of that, when liberalism and fundamentalism are really just reactions to each other. They're not essentially doing anything different. They're both based on the superiority of human reason. They're just starting with different political perspectives and couching them in religious terminology. I kind of grew up with this in uh, the battle for the Bible, you know, and the whole issue of inerrancy, which was a the fundamentalist reaction to theological liberalism. I think the 
post-liberal recognition of the problem of that is that in battling for the Bible on the basis of what you're getting in the notion of a text that is scientifically, historically, in other words, you go through and you're going to prove the Bible is true on the basis of these other authorities. Well, that's one form of foundationalism, is that you believe science, you believe that we have the ability to to argue this out, and you can prove it is true. And so, in a sense, you're implicitly Mm -hmm. arguing on the basis of a different authority that the authority of the Bible is, is complete. Liberalism is not different than that. It's also arguing on the basis of science, of reason. I mean, this is the whole historical, critical uh, approach. Uh, actually, no. one of the uh, books that came out years ago by a man named Gerhard Mayer, who, strangely enough, was at Tübingen University, which is kind of the heartland of his historical, critical understanding. That's his point, is this, the whole problem is whether you're defending a liberalism or a fundamentalism, actually you're all agreed. You're really all agreed on the basis of your authority, and neither view is holding to Scripture as, or Christ, you know, as the final right. authority. You have an authority, and you're arguing for the basis of that authority, what you hold to be in reality, whether you say it or not, is a secondary authority. I'm seeing a lot, and I don't know if it's just a sort of current mood. I'm seeing a lot of people sort of uh, turning to like uh, Peter Inns, other sort of sources that are critical of the Bible itself as being an authority, trying to state instead that we're, we're Christ followers, not Bible followers or there's a, a sense that we're we're afraid to talk about scripture being authoritative and I think that it's almost like we're trying to concede to the the fundamentals okay you can have the Bible we'll take Jesus and following Jesus as if following Jesus isn't being biblical and I think the exact quote I'm re remembering is God calls us to be Christ followers not biblical. And I remember reacting to that thinking, but according to Jesus, being a Christ follower is being biblical. What I tried to get across to the, the person I was conversing with, he never reads a Bible verse and then says, now, just toss all of that, follow me. Instead, he says, he reads the verse and says, this has been fulfilled in your, in your hearing, right in front of you, this is happening. Or... He, yeah. he says, you know, even in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, but I tell you, he's not undoing those. He says, not one word of this is going to fall away. Instead, your righteousness will surpass that of this. So it's going to be, he's fulfilling it. He's, he's not s displacing it. That's the part that I, I think is lost on folks that want to swing back to well, let's, let's go back to this liberalism, is that neither side, the fundamentalists or the liberals, are handling Scripture well. To react to fundamentalism by saying, well, the problem is you're too biblical, is an insult to the Bible. 
and to the yeah. people that wrote it. Yeah. It's just not it's not fair. <laughs> the they're not doing the Bible. <laughs> they're doing something else. That we're in um, a kind of situation that in which this conversation makes no sense to whole groups of people. This is sort of what Thomas Kuhn warns about in a paradigm shift, and I think we are very much in the midst of a paradigm shift, that for most people, those are the two choices. They'll be either conservative, fundamentalist, or they'll be a liberal, and not recognizing that the point of Christianity and, and what you're getting in Christianity. I think this is why the, the conversation about Ludwig Wittgenstein is also important, because he is then noticing something that many people have, I mean, this is sort of the falling apart of modernity, is there's the presumption that we have access to some sort of transcended authority when, well, no, actually we're all human beings and we're finite and we're confined to a particular time and place. So we have to acknowledge that aspect of post-modernity but then to say, well, then there is no truth or there's no absolute truth, which is, again, a kind of giving in to a form of liberal relativism. That's not the case either. In other words, when you're talking about the authority of the Bible, you're talking about revelation. You're talking about uh, that we believe that, in fact, God has broken into history, not that he's given us a, a text of timeless truths, that float above history in some way. I mean, the whole point of the incarnation is that Christ appears at a particular time and place. We understand who he is through our own, as in Hans George Gadamer's picture, there is the, the two horizons then come to meet one another. We acknowledge that there is this truth, and we also acknowledge that we don't own it. It's not something that we can necessarily, in other words, we don't have the mind of God. We don't, it's not something that we control. The truth in this sense is bigger than we are. And so the, to say that there is truth and I believe in truth and we have access to truth, I believe in this time you can say it in a much more Christian way that people caught up in a kind of modernist paradigm uh, when you said the word truth, what they thought was on the order of some sort of mathematical, scientific, transcendent, ahistorical, disembodied, and there's just no such thing. I had a sneaking suspicion a little bit ago uh, when one of us was saying something that we were going to end up needing to talk about epistemology. The issue with truth, I'll just be real open about one of my fears in the current political climate. There's a lot of talk about climate change and even silly things like flat earth theories or whatever that are just beyond silly. I'm a believer in climate change and I'm very concerned with it. And I'm very concerned that as people owe it to God and his creation to be responsible with the way we handle creation for peaceful creation care. So I'm disturbed when I hear people trying to reject that. What I'm equally disturbed by is as people like the current administration try to reject the idea of climate change, that I'm also seeing other people talk about fact and truth in ways that are less humble 
than they should. Now, I think you can look at the evidence for climate change and say, yes, we have every reason to believe this. We can't always turn to science and and say every scientific theory is fact, which is the scientism that I think, I'm afraid that what what we may end up running back to is the sort of modern liberal scientism that that I think theological conservatism and liberalism are founded in, just like you said. The guy that, at the Mennonite church, what, what I tried to explain to folks when we said we're not going to be able to stay, and they were really upset, is he has lifted his own reason over scripture. He said it with words. I don't know that he understood that that's what he was saying. But when you are saying, I'm going to judge whether these pieces are true or useful based on what I already know to be right, you're really saying, I'm the authority here. The same thing is true, though, for the conservative. And the way we did New Testament studies in in my alma mater, certainly the way we studied the Gospels, it really was up to us to defend these books from the liberals who attacked them. And so we still saw ourselves as being authoritative over them, and then it was our job to fix them. (laughs) We had to fix the problems that the deconstructors had found in them. I used to try and get my students, when we talked about hermeneutics, I used to try to get them to say, you know, rather than grasping the Bible, that's a textbook I often used in, in my hermeneutics classes called Grasping God's Word. It's a really great approach to reading scripture. One of the things I liked about it was it tried to be humble and say, even after we've done all this study, we still have more to learn. What I was always trying to do is try and get people to be gripped by the Bible rather than grasping it. Let it own you. Let the stories shape you and keep changing how you understand them. Keep learning how to better understand them, but don't hold over them like it's your job to rip this apart or glue it together. So you like the book, not the title. Uh, I hate the title, yeah. <laughs> uh, you taught a course, I mean, that was the uh, Plowshares Bible Institute. You did, the, I think that was the book you used, wasn't it? Yeah, we use that book for that. And in that course, we're really trying to focus more on reading the Bible as a community of people. But we sort of rely on that as kind of a, giving us a way to to try to understand context and genre as we read it. You know, the main thrust is trying to be in conversation about Scripture. I think a sickness that we have being postmodern is this idea that um, we're all sort of reading it on our own. And it means whatever, well, whatever it means to you is what it means to you. And instead, we're supposed to be asking, what's the what's the author's idea when we read it? Let me complicate the conversation a bit, which is probably what I do. I always get, um, I always get chills when you say something like that. In the midst of a shift, so. people are scrambling for some hard and fast thing that they can come up with. And I'm afraid that a, another alternative, you know, there's theological liberalism, there's fundamentalism. But then there is a turn back to, and you see this in various radical, the traditional trad Catholics is one of the things it's called, that it's an extremely fundamentalism of a new order. It is a kind of radical belief in the authority, if you're Catholic, in the authority of the Pope, which ironically, even Pope Francis has come out and said, no, Vatican II is really true. I think you get it in various forms of Episcopalianism or Anglicanism, 
That is, I think it's there in a lot of the high church. I'm not equating it with any of those, but that there is a turn to a relinquishing to say, well, we'll invest the authority in the church or and to imagine that the church then is constituted by some form of unified tradition about any topic. And of course, anybody that reads church history knows that's laughable, that there is just simply no such thing. Again, the, the other element that's part of this, when we in post-liberalism, there is the idea, well, we read the Bible in the church, meaning, yes, inclusive of tradition. That in and of itself is not some sort of resolution that now I can rely on tradition, or I can rely on what the bishops say, or I can as if the church has given us uh, some sort of definitive interpretation or understanding that now we can in some way relinquish our own responsibility that this passed through our minds too. And what I'm saying here may sound like, oh, you're well, now you're back to the individual. No, I'm just saying that what we need to include in the discussion, in other words, we, we certainly don't want to make it in a kind of modernist sense based on individualism or individual rational authority, but neither do we want to relinquish the idea that Paul has of the transformation of the mind of each of us. In other words, this whole thing, it includes our agency. We're not left out of it, but we also then are involved in being, uh, you know, when we talk about the truth of Scripture, well, that's something that to live that out in some way, you can't just be dictated to but that has to pass through your own understanding. I totally get what you're saying. And I feel that tension myself because my wife and I have kind of landed at a church uh, with some very sweet people. It's, a, it's an Episcopal church. We're, we're kind of sitting in tension with that right now. Um, I don't think that I could ever, for that reason, become a member of, of the church because I, I can't capitulate to that kind of authority. But to me, the problem is the, not the term authority, but who has that authority. When I use the term uh, reading the Bible in community, in my mind, um, that's a community of people who recognize that the authority is from the apostles and in Scripture, that it's there. That's where the authority is. And that you and I are the people, the community is the people who participate in that, who are wrestling with, with understanding what comes from that authority. The problem with the Roman Catholic tradition, certainly through the Middle Ages, it was at, I don't, I don't want to say it's at its worst, but we can definitely pull out uh, quite a few uh, problems throughout. And even in the last century where we're now seeing so many cases of child of sexual abuse because of abuse of authority that uh, that went rampant because of abuse of authority. The problem with taking authority from Scripture and giving it to people is that people are sinful and corrupt, and authority becomes power. The reason, in my mind, the the goal is to keep uh -huh. authority that Scripture is authoritative, not this human structure. So. Yeah, we read it, and now recognizing it as authoritative is not the same as saying, this is this is the way to read this passage, and this is what I get from it, and I'm going to hold this over you, 
It is instead to say, I may not understand what it means, and I hope I do. Maybe I've got this wrong, but I'm still going to hold this as being authoritative. And maybe that means sometimes I have to sit and sort of let it sit, like we were saying earlier, let it sit in tension. The guy that I was telling you about earlier who had preached the sermon at the Mennonite Church, one of the things that came out in our conversation when he asked me what I thought of it, and then I and I'd said, you know, I don't think very much of it. It was clear that one of the things that he's he's concerned with is justice issues when it came to gender and gender identity and homosexuality, and he wants to be open and affirming. Now I'm sympathetic. I, I the, this is an area that I I wrestle with trying to understand. And trying to understand the Christian way of, of, and I have dear, dear, beloved friends that uh, are very special to me. Because of that, I'm I, I wrestle with that, but I'm not willing to say, well, Romans one and some of these other passages that they sometimes call the clobber passages. I'm not willing to just toss them to the side because of that. Where I'm at right now and where I've been for a couple of years is just I have to live in tension with that and hope that somehow I'm going to find something that helps me make better sense of that. And I think Stan Harwas has, um, this may be uh, controversial, but I heard a, a Stan Harwas lecture some years ago where he said, I very much want to affirm healthy relationships with folks yeah. who are um, homosexual, I very, I, I don't very much I can call that marriage. I don't know if it's helpful to get into a, a deep conversation about that here, but it was at least not saying hyper-fundamentalism or throw those verses out <laughs> liberalism, right? It was, there was some tension there. And I just don't feel like the liberals or the conservatives are very comfortable with just living with some of that tension. It's about having a quick answer to, to the tension. Yeah, that in some way you're going to use the culture to, to give a quick answer. On, on that particular issue, I don't know that I have a ready and fast answer, but clearly what we're called to is not to be in some way, in order to, to find, I think what people do, they find a peculiar sin, and they then condemn that as if that is the ultimate sin. And I think that that's what you're finding here is that on a fundamentalist side, that uh, homosexuality has kind of become the bearer of all that's wrong. And then in a, on on the other side is to say, well, no, we we now know that that's just the way people are made. I just don't see that what's happening in Scripture, that in some way we're all fallen, that we all have, uh, and that may manifest itself in any number of ways, and that for any of us to in some way uh, imagine that our fallenness, first of all, that it doesn't, that, that being fallen doesn't make us acceptable. Well, obviously that's not the case. Nor is it the case that the peculiar nature of our fallenness, because we're accepted, means it's okay. No, <laughs> we're all called uh, to, to, in some way, a fullness of humanity in Christ that we're still striving right. to attain. That, that that's the whole point of Christianity, is that the identity is, does not leave us where we were or Right. where we are, but neither uh, in, in any sense. In other words, you can leave yourself where you are in some way that you're, you're condemned or that you're accepted. Of course, neither of those is the case with any of us. 
Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.